you're visiting with us on Sunday mornings, we are making our way through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, and we come to a very familiar story this morning in John chapter 8, and I want to read John chapter 8 down through verse number 11. John chapter 8, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says that Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as they heard them not. I don't have time to preach this, but there are three times in your Bible where God wrote something with his finger. Three times. And I don't have time to preach that. I wish I did. But verse number seven. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. There was a flow of, of, of thought between chapter 7 and chapter 8 to tell us that the scene has not changed in the chapter break. If you remember from the last couple of weeks, chapter 7 has placed us in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three annual feasts that every Jew came to Jerusalem for. We are six months away from the week of the crucifixion. Jesus had come into Jerusalem during the middle part of that feast and there had been considerable debate and discussion about his identity. The Pharisees had sent deputies out to try to arrest him and they had failed. And so Jesus was still at large in the vicinity. He was still free to move about. We know that this week-long feast has ended because the Bible says, and we looked at this last week, that on the last day of the feast that Jesus had stood and had said that I, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and, and drink. That was on the last day of the feast. And so the feast has ended. The great crowds that have come from around the world, they have dispersed and they're going back home and the city is returning to a more normal state. Chapter 8 then opens with Jesus early in the morning of the next day going back to Jerusalem, back to the temple courts, and there he commences teaching to a crowd that gathers. John does not give us the outline. He does not give us the contents of the Lord's sermon, but he focuses in on an interruption that takes place during that. When I am preaching, I don't like to be interrupted. I... Um, I like to zone in and kind of get focused in and, 
And I don't like people moving about and in and out and babies crying. Sometimes you have that. But I, 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 I learned to zone things out. I, I learned to just kind of zero in on those that are listening, zone out those that are not. If you sleep, it doesn't bother me. I'm fine with that. But, but I don't like interruptions. I like, I like to just get into flow and just go. Sometimes, sometimes people are distracting without even knowing that they are. But these men, these scribes and Pharisees have come in. They have interrupted the service and they have meant to do so. Scribes and Pharisees, they make a big show of barging through the crowd and they are dragging a hapless woman with their, them and they dump her unceremoniously there at the altar where Jesus stood. These are proud men. These are self-righteous men. These are egotistical men. They have absolutely no compassion for the woman. They have no respect for the Lord Jesus. They are there to embarrass her and to entrap Jesus in a difficult situation. They're trying to put him in a, a, a spiritual dilemma, to pit him against the law and, and discredit him before the people. That, that, that is their intent. And though they, the sin of this woman is great, the sin of the Pharisees is even greater. That's what we're going to find out in this story. You see, she knew that she was a sinner. They would have denied that they were a sinner. Her sin is exposed and open to the public, but theirs is covered under a cloak of religion. Her sin makes her a candidate for mercy. Their pride makes them fit for judgment. And the sitting hints, hidden sins of the heart are often harder to root out than the outward sins of the flesh. And so the Pharisees and scribes, they have created this scene and it's designed to trap the Lord Jesus. They are frustrated that they've not been able to silence him. They've not been able to arrest him. We know that Jesus was on a divine time schedule. We found that out in these verses prior last week. And they're not going to be able to crucify him until heaven gives the green light. It, it is up to heaven. It is up to God as to when that is going to happen. And so they are, they are deadlocked on how to deal with him. We can't arrest him. We can't crucify him. Nicodemus has called their bluff and said that if we're going to do anything, we're going to do it by the law. They've sent out deputies to arrest him. They have failed and and he has the sympathy of the public and so we've got to make sure that we have a tight case against him unless there is a public outcry. And so what you have in John chapter 8 are the scribes and the Pharisees, they're going to discredit him. We are going to trip him up is what we're going to do. And we're going to discredit him before the people. We're going to create a controversy and we're going to put him on the horns of a dilemma where he has no way out. We're going to ruin his testimony, his credibility. And that's what John 8 is all about. That's an easy passage to preach. Every preacher has preached this. It, it, it lends itself easily to outlining. There's a hundred ways to take it. But I want you to look in this story, and I, I want to bring out three things to you this morning. And the first thing that I, I, I want to bring to you is the character of the scribes. The character of the scribes. Look again in verse number three. The scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. So the scribes and Pharisees, they have 
caught a woman in adultery. And I'm going to tell you right now, it smells like a setup to me. I'll be honest with you. They publicly shame her in front of the crowd. That's not necessary. But their motives, their motives say that she is just a pawn to them. That's all that she is. She's not a person. She's not somebody's mother. She's not somebody's daughter. She is a tool to be used and discarded when they have no more use for her. In fact, some commentators even suggest that she was a prostitute. Nothing in the text suggests that. No, nothing says that she was a prostitute. She doesn't come willingly. She comes kicking and screaming and she's in tears and he, she's humiliated and, and she's disgraced before all of the people. And I honestly cannot imagine a more horrible scene. Can, can you put yourself there? Self-righteous men who, who care nothing for her, but they are willing to shame her and disgrace her and embarrass her in an attempt to try to trap the Lord Jesus. And I think that they have purposely chosen an adulterous situation because adultery was a very serious thing to the Jews. In fact, the Jews categorized sins. And the three, the three greatest sins to the Jews' mind was idolatry, murder, and adultery. The penalty, the penalty for a man or woman who was betrothed, engaged, was stoning. The penalty for a man or woman who was already married was, was strangulation. In fact, the Levitical law prescribed stoning for adultery. This is a crime that is punishable by death. But it's suspicious to me that they have brought her and they've not brought him. Because she didn't commit adultery by herself. There had to be a man involved. And that tells me that their motives were not as righteous as they presented and that this could have even been a, a contrived case. You see, Judaism had a provision in their law that said that if a woman caught her husband in adultery and divorced him, they split the property. However, if the man caught his wife in adultery and they divorced, then he kept all of the property. It was slanted toward the man to be sure. And so it is possible even that the husband is in on this setup. He knew that she was unfaithful. Perhaps they tracked her, they followed her. And when they got her in the act, that's when they spring the trap. That way he can divorce her and he keeps all of the property. I, I don't know the exact circumstance. I, I, I don't know, but I know that she is guilty of adultery. She is guilty and it smells like a setup. And it's important that she be caught in the act because you can't stone somebody on circumstantial evidence. It needs to be a tight case. If you saw a lady coming out of another man's house early in the morning, that's suspicious. And we can surmise, but, she, but that's circumstantial evidence to catch somebody in the very act of adultery. And that's what it says. It caught her in the very act. That means you basically had to walk in on them. You, you watching for it. You, 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 are, you, you might not have set her up, but, but you are waiting for the opportunity because that would be a difficult thing to Would you not think that would be difficult to prove? They caught her in the act. Well, verse four. They say, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, now here, here's the situation. 
Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse. Oh, they're so smug and they are so proud. They have finally created a situation. They have him on the horns of a dilemma. And no matter how he answers, he's going to be wrong. It's like asking the question, have you quit beating your wife yet? Well, if you say yes, then you've just admitted you were beating your wife. If you say no, that suggests that you still are beating your wife. It doesn't matter how you answer, you're wrong either way. So, 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 so here's the dilemma. And, 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 and what the problem is, if Jesus says yes, she should be stoned, he's pitting himself against the Roman government. Because the Roman government doesn't give the Jews the right of execution. That belongs to the Romans. If he says, no, she should not be stoned, then he's going against the law of Moses. He's in conflict with Moses. And we might have figured it out with John telling us in verse number six, but verse six makes very clear what their motives are. They're not concerned about the law. They're not concerned about righteousness. They're not concerned about this woman that has committed a grievous sin. They are using her as a pawn. And it's interesting to me that they quote the law of Moses, but he's gonna quote more than they did. And it's interesting how people just quote parts of the Bible that fits their need. And to be honest with you, they're not really concerned about stoning the woman. They're trying to set it up so they can stone Jesus. But I want you to focus for just a minute. I'm trying to hurry. I want you to focus in on the character of these scribes and Pharisees because they thrust themselves into the scenario. And so they, they, they deserve our scrutiny. And I want you to see if you can place yourself there. All right, just use your sanctified imagination if there is such a thing. And I, I want you to stand there in that temple courtyard and you're listening to Jesus teach. And, and here come these men and they, they push people out of the way and they, they barge in to that conclave of people that are dressed in their clerical robes and they're so smug and they're so self-righteous. And they drag this woman before Jesus and, and they dump her on the ground and she's huddled on the ground and very loud that they announce her sins to everybody. Maybe they've brought witnesses for sure they have brought stones. This woman ought to be stoned. So what say you, Jesus? Could it be that we are about to witness a stoning? And notice what they say, this woman. This woman has a name. And they probably knew her name. Well, there's such scorn, there is such disdain, there is such contempt. And so they come and they bring her, this woman ought to be stoned. Can you imagine being present at a stoning? Did you know stonings actually still happen around the world? Places like Saudi Arabia, Africa, uh, Pakistan, Middle Eastern countries, even some African countries. And, 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 and I'm not sure in a stoning who throws the first stone, but somebody has to. Right. And not little stones, but big stones. Right. Big, big stones that, that, would, that would cause a lot of damage. And imagine that if you were stoning someone that you would aim at the torso or maybe at the head. And, and does it bruise or does it create an embrace? Are you getting the picture? She should be stoned. I'd imagine in a stoning that there's not a lot of blood, but, 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 but a lot of pain. And, and it's meant to inflict a lot of pain and pain upon pain upon pain and then weakness and then unconsciousness and then death. And 
And I wonder, do the stoners feel any remorse? Or, or, or do they feel good about themselves? Are, are you with me? We, we get ready to have a stoning. Did, did you know that stonings still happen? I'm talking about actual stonings. But, 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 but you know, I, I think about the character of these scribes and these Pharisees can be found in men and women, listen to me, who don't hold actual stones in their hands, but they hurl stones of accusation and innuendo and slander and gossip and, and false judgment. They don't care any more for the people that they're slandering than the scribes and Pharisees care for this woman. The same smug, self-righteous, hypocritical spirit that is found in us is found in them. And if you think that's too strong of an analogy, the Bible says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Yeah. I, I, listen, I get that this lady is guilty. Please, please understand that. She is guilty. She is caught in the very act. But you know what she needs that day? She needs a friend. She needs somebody that can show her some grace and some mercy. She doesn't need stones thrown at her. She needs a helping hand. Will somebody say amen right there? And I thought about stone throwers. I, I thought about the character of stone throwers. And, and just write this down if you think it's thought worthy. And I thought about how that they are always fault finders. Come on. Yeah. Verse 3 says she is taken in adultery. Verse 4, she's taken in adultery in the very act. They have caught her in a sin. But can I tell you something about Pharisees? They never catch you in a blessing. They never catch somebody doing good or being good or doing a good deed. They never catch you serving or ministering or helping. The mark of a Pharisee is that they always find fault with people. They found fault with Jesus' disciples. Why do they eat with unwashing hands? And why do your disciples not fast like we do? And they found fault even with Jesus. I mean, you've got to be really spiritual to find fault with Jesus. He heals on the Sabbath day. He has a devil. He doesn't keep our tradition. They are fault finders is what they are. I'll tell you something else about, about the character of these scribes is they travel in packs. Verse 3. Verse 3, look at it. The scribes, Pharisees, and when they, it's not just one. It is a group. They have come together because it is unusual for a stone thrower to throw stones by himself. If you can get two or three other people to join in, then it makes it a whole lot easier. And by the way, you never have to introduce a stone thrower to another stone thrower. They will always find each other. Yeah. If you have a man in the church with an angry spirit, I don't have to tell you the other man has an angry spirit. You'll find him. If you have a rebellious teenager in the church, I don't have to say, oh, by the way, those two over there have the same spirit. No, they, it's like Magnus. They'll, they'll find each other. A disgruntled church member does not have to be introduced to other disgruntled church members somehow like, like flies to honey. They, they'll find each other. They just travel in packs. And then, and then they are kind. They, they are unkind. They would, rather, they would rather die her die than live. We would rather stone her than bless her. In fact, they have a good day if they could have a stoning. Jesus ruined their day is what he did. I mean, he canceled the stoning 
And he gave them a bad day. They're unkind. And, and, and in verse 2, it says, it says all, the pe- all the people, verse 3, they sent her in the midst. Let's make it public. Let's humiliate her before, her, before we kill her. It's not enough to stone her. We want to shame her too. You know, if they'd have really cared for her, they'd have pulled Jesus to the side. And so, Lord, could, could, would you mind come over? Let's talk to you for just a minute. We, we, we caught this woman in, in, in adultery, and, 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 it, it, and it's bad. And, and, and Lord, she's probably been doing it for a while, but, but, but just over here in the corner, we don't need to, don't need to bring this for the whole congregation, but, but could, we just, could we just talk about the Lord? Lord, how do you think we ought, we ought to handle this? But they're small. They're vindictive. They're, they're spiteful. Oh, they polish their halos, and they fold their wings, and they're so smug in their self-righteousness and they parade their perfections before everybody. They are the spiritual ones, but they're spiteful. They're vindictive is what they are. But I want you to notice what Jesus said in verse number six. I wish I had my ameners here this morning. They're all preaching in other churches. In verse six, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, and I love this, as though he heard them not. Jesus is not interested in anything the Pharisee has to say. They're talking to him. He's not listening to them. They're trying to tell him something. He's ignoring them. I tell you, when you come to pray with the critical spirit, he ain't hearing you either. Is that okay for the church? And, and these Pharisees and scribes, they, they deserve the scrutiny because they have put themselves in the scenario and their spirit indicts them. They are as guilty as she is. And perhaps you and I ought to be more keen to our own sin than we are to the sins of others. I'm not talking about turning a blind eye to sin. I'm not talking about being this lovey-dovey and never judges. And that's not what I'm talking about. But may I judge me as strongly as I judge you. May I see the fault in me. May I see the sin in me. And may I not be, be overcome with the spirit of self-righteousness and hypocrisy where all I do is find fault in you and find no fault in myself. The character of the scribes. But secondly, I, I want you to notice the compassion of the Savior. That becomes very obvious. And in our Lord's response, he's going to deal both with the scribes and with the sinner woman. And notice how he confronts them. Look if you would in verse number six. This they said tempting him that they might have to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and with his finger rolled on the ground as though he heard them not. Now it's been suggested that Jesus rolled on the ground to give himself time to formulate a response. I don't think that he needed time to be honest with you. I think he writes on the ground to give them time to think about their question. Are you sure this is the question that you want to come to me for? And he stoops on the ground and begins to write on the sand and he never says a word to them. Notice he doesn't speak to them. Silence can be so deafening, can't it? In fact, silence is so awkward. Yeah. I was preaching this week in Arkansas. And Tuesday night, first preacher preached, people got up and sang, and then there was prayer and there was a little bit of move with the Holy Spirit in the place. And pastor really didn't know how to proceed. I, I was scheduled to be the next preacher. 
And, and it was one of those services. What, what, do we have a preacher? Do we dismiss? Do we have more singing? What, what do we do? And so he sat on the platform in silence. And for several minutes, we just sat, waiting on the Lord to see what we do. I'm fine with that. But silence can be so awkward. You ever notice how noisy our world is? They're noisy all the time. I mean, we're driving down the car. We've got to have the radio on. The television is constantly blaring. You can't even pump your gas at the gas station without them playing a commercial to you. It's almost as if men are afraid to be silent and alone with their thoughts. Right? You've got to have noise all the time, all the time. And so, so Jesus begins by saying nothing. He ignores them as though he has not heard a word they say. And God will ignore you too if your heart's not right. Now, there's all kinds of speculation as to what Jesus wrote in the sand. One of the deep mysteries of the Bible that you'll have to wait to heaven to find out. As if you will care when you get to heaven. We have no idea. But the silence had to have been more dramatic than any argument he could have presented. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, silence is killing them. He lifted up himself and said unto him, them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. If what he wrote on the ground was convicting, what he's about to say is even going to be more so. And here's the thing. They have asked him a judicial question. Jesus was not a judge. He's not a Levite. He, he, he has no seat of authority in the hierarchy of Judaism. He, he does not pass legal judgment. So he bypasses the legal question and he turns it into a moral question. They're safe as long as we say in legalities, but in terms of morality, we got a problem. Right. And verse number eight. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And by this, he caused them to pass judgment upon themselves because that's really the important thing as far as he is concerned. And what he does is he forces them to look inwardly, to examine their own lives. They stand before the one who knows the heart of every man, and they cannot escape the gaze of the omniscient Jesus. And what they're going to have to do is going to have to come clean with their own heart. And if you really want to have a stoning, then he that is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they began to slip away, began to slip away. Convicted by their own conscience. And I want you to understand something. Please understand this. Jesus does not defend the woman. He does not minimize adultery. But he does not accept the challenge on their terms. I, I, I tell you, he does not fall into their controversy and into their trap. In fact, he, he doesn't even plead mercy for her. He doesn't even plead mercy for her. If you listen to what he says, he agrees to the execution. The law says she ought to be executed in stone. Who's got the stones? Whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. But the law required, the law required that in order for her to be stoned, there had to be witnesses against her and the witnesses had to cast the first stones. Well, that, that would cut down on false witnessing, wouldn't it? 
So somebody step up here with a stone and let's get this on. And it's interesting again how they wanted to quote scripture, but there are other parts they didn't want to quote. And don't, don't think that Jesus minimized the sin of adultery. In fact, Jesus took it more seriously than they did because Jesus said in Matthew 5, he that looked upon a woman after the lust unto her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And the reality is every man standing there was as guilty as she was. Oh, yeah. Romans 2 and verse 2, thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Jesus was more concerned about purity than they were. I wish you and I were as worried about our own sins as we are the sins of others. I need God to talk to me. My sins, my problems, my faults. I may not be guilty of adultery, but am I guilty of hypocrisy? Am I guilty of pride? Am I guilty of anger? Am I guilty of self-righteousness? Are not those sins just as wicked? And I'm pointing this out to you, and I'm in a hurry. But it's interesting, verse number 8, watch this. Again, he stooped down and wrote, wrote on the ground, verse 9, and they which heard it. Now, it's interesting. He speaks to them, gets back on the ground, and starts writing again. And the Bible says that they heard it. So does that mean they heard what he said in verse 7, or did they hear what he was writing in verse number 8? And I'm not sure, but the word of God needs to have a hearing in your heart. Whether it's the spoken word of God or the written word of God. Whatever he writes is the word of God. And that word has smote their conscience and they're convicted by it. We don't hear much about conviction anymore, do we? No, let's come to church and preacher, tell me how good I am. Tell me what a good Christian I am. But I don't want to hear anything that convicts me. But whatever he wrote on the ground, it convicted them. I don't know what it was. It the name of the man? Was it the name of the women that they had been with? I don't know. But whatever it was, it was convicting. Convicting. Why are people never bothered by their sin anymore? Huh? I'm, I'm going to tell you, and I'm moving on. If you can go to church for any length of time and you never get your toes stepped on, huh? And it's amazing how we can preach on sin for a month and never name one, huh? I mean, every once in a while, name one. Say something that is wrong. huh? And every once in a while, my heart ought to be smoked. Every once in a while, there ought to be some conviction set in that I am not as holy as I present myself to be. And the conscience has been seared and has been defiled so that the, so the conviction can't set into the heart. So he confronts them. But then to notice quickly how he comforts her. The scribes, they all slip away. Crowd's still standing there. That's just Jesus and the lady. The sinner and the Savior. Misery and mercy just standing there. And make no mistake, she's guilty. There's no way they would have brought her on trumped up charges. There's nothing in the text to indicate that she's been framed or falsely accused. She is caught in the act. But when Jesus addresses her, he doesn't ask her about her sin. He doesn't say, give me the details. Who was it? How many men? How many? He didn't say none of that. He simply says that if there's no one here left to condemn you, if there's no witnesses, there's no condemnation. So I guess we're going to have to cancel the stoning. There will be no stoning today. And there's some commentators who say that Jesus didn't say to her, thy sins be forgiven thee like he did in other places. 
So there are some commentators say that all that Jesus did is let her go. It doesn't say that she repented of her sins. It doesn't say that Jesus forgave her of her sins. It just says he said, go and sin no more. And I don't want to read between the lines, but the spirit of the passage tells me that Jesus not only forgave her what she had done, he freed her to live a new life. Without reading into the passage, the passage leads me to believe Jesus changed her life that day. He says two things to her. He says, verse number 11, neither do I condemn thee. Everybody's standing with stones in their hands, but he has no stones in his hand. He could have condemned her. He could have joined in the accusation. And it's interesting that in this very chapter later on, Jesus would be accused of being soft on sin. Hard to make that accusation when in six months he's going to die for her sin. And he doesn't tell her, don't worry about sinning. He doesn't tell her, it's okay what you've done. No, he's, he doesn't tell her, don't think that it's not a big deal. But he doesn't tell her, clean up your act first and I forgive you. He doesn't tell her to change your ways and then I'll decide what I'm going to do. He says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. I love you enough that I'll love you where you are. But I'm not going to leave you where you are. I'm going to set you free. I'm going to enable you to live a different life. I don't condone your sin. I don't condemn you. I'm going to set you free. And it's not just a command. I think it is hope. Jesus saw into her heart the despair and the hopelessness. And Jesus offers her a new life. He is telling her that sin has ruined your life. Are you listening? It's ruined your life. But you don't have to continue living in sin. Character of the scribes. Compassion of the Savior. Can I give you one more thought out of this story? I, and I heard you. One more thought. In this story, there is a controversy over the scripture. Now, if you're visiting with us, our position is that the King James Bible is the word of God. We believe that it was translated from a pure line of text, that the translation itself is in error, and that nothing needs to be amended, changed, added, subtracted, nothing. It is the perfect word of God. We believe every word in the Bible exactly as it is written. We believe that. But there have been relentless attacks against the Bible, against the manuscripts, against the translation itself. There have been more attacks against the King James Bible than any other translation. When you study manuscript evidence and textual criticism, which we will not today, there are certain passages that every textual critic criticizes. I think I told you that the last section of Mark, Mark 16, verse 8 to 20. If you read that in any modern translation, NIV, NASB, it doesn't matter. They either admit it or they put it in brackets and say, this was not in the oldest and best manuscripts. That's what they always come up with. It's not in the oldest and the best manuscripts, which means them to say that it was added later on. It was not part of the original scripture. It's added later on by some scribe. That is always the basis of the, of the attack. It is not in the best and the oldest manuscripts. We have found manuscripts in the first century that do not have this passage. Then we have found manuscripts in the fourth century that do have this passage that tells us it was not there in the first century, but it was added later on in the fourth century. That is always the tack. 
And as I was studying this passage, I remembered that John 8, 1 to 11, this passage is one of the passages that is always attacked. In fact, John 7, verse 30, 53, the last verse in chapter 7, down to John 8 and verse number 11, they say is not part of the original text. The texture critic says that this was a popular story that floated around there. And what happened is sometime after the apostolic period that some scribe took it and inserted it into a copy of John's gospel. And in fact, you can find manuscripts where it is in different places. So they call it a floating antidote. They just put it in there. They just inserted it. It was not part of the original text. Some scribe just put it in where he thought it would belong. Now, this is not a text on class on textual manuscripts. I will tell you that there's 1,495 Greek manuscripts on the Gospel of John that has this story in it. I will tell you that there's 495 lectionaries. That's kind of like a songbook that the early church used. And it would have scriptural readings. And it has this story in it. But I thought, I thought, why would Satan attack this passage? And I believe those attacks are satanic. I believe it's Satan trying to discredit the Bible. Just like the scribes and Pharisees. They're trying to discredit the Lord Jesus. So Satan tries to discredit the Bible and with his texture critics to say that it's not belong. So what is it about this particular story that it does not want to be told? And I wonder, is it that he does not want the idea that hypocrisy is exposed? The most obvious lesson is the hypocrisy, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. So is it that Satan does not want you and I to face our own self-righteous ways? Is that what he so objects about in this story? The word of God is convicting. The word of God pierces the conscience that Satan does not want us to face our, our own guilt and our, our own sin. Or could it be the part about Jesus being a friend of sinners and there being grace and compassion and him not condemning for you? Is that the part that he doesn't want to could it be that Satan doesn't want you to hear that there's grace for your life and forgiveness for your sin? Could it be that Satan wants to condemn you and for you not to know that there's a Savior ready to forgive you? Could it be that part about go and sin no more? That you don't have to live in sin. That the power of Christ and the power of blood frees you from the power of sin. During those first centuries, Satan orchestrated an attack against this gospel and against this story. And there was something in here that he does not want told. And if he would have been able, he would have stricken it from the record and nobody would have ever heard this story. He sent the scribes and Pharisees to discredit Jesus. And when it fails, he tries to erase the evidence. And don't let him do that in your heart. Don't let Satan take this word and snatch it out of your heart. Can you picture the scene? Are you there? Are you there to see it? See it? Do you see the sights? See the people? Hear the sounds? There in the courtyard. See the Pharisees? Here they come. Here they come. Dragging this lady before Christ. Can you see her? Ashamed, disgraced, embarrassed. All of her faults laid out to the public. Do you see the anger in Christ's eyes? Do you see him? Face set like flint. Anger against the self-righteousness of these Pharisees. 
And do you see yourself in the scene? Are you there? And it could be this morning, piano player, come. It could be that you're one of the stone throwers. The message is not that we should never judge sin. The message that we ought to judge our own sin as strong as we judge somebody else's. If you're always throwing stones at other people, pick up the stones and go throw them somewhere else. This is not the congregation of stone throwers. That church meets down the road somewhere else. But before you pick up stones and throw them at somebody else, examine your own mind. You know, it could even be that you're the one that somebody's throwing stones at. I preached this text nine years ago. And at that moment, Brother Jason, there was a whole lot of people throwing stones at me. I remember it so clearly. And when somebody is throwing stones at you, the temptation is to pick the stones up and throw them back. I'm going to say something. I'm going to put it on Facebook. I'm going to tweet it out. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw the stone back. Don't do that. It could be there's somebody here. You're the lady. Caught in the act. There's no use denying it. No use protesting your innocence. You you know, you know. Maybe it's not adultery. But the law has condemned you and you have no defense. But while you have no defense, you do have a friend in Jesus. And he will forgive you. And he will change you. He will give you a life much better than what sin has ever given you.